0: Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 up to about verse 15, and we saw three particular things that Paul said to the Corinthian church. He said why you should give, he said how you should give, and he said when you should give. And uh, what we're going to do today is continue in Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and uh, as an introduction, I'd like you to consider something that is um, a time when Christian leaders or nonprofit leaders get thrust into the public eye. For the most part, would you agree that Christian generosity is not necessarily trumpeted in our culture? That Christians who are generous, people who are generous, they don't make the front page. But there is one time... When individuals who handle money get thrust into the spotlight, isn't there? And that's when they mismanage money, right? Right now, even as I mention that, you can think of the people who come to mind who are pariahs in our culture because of how they have abused the poor or mismanaged funds or made sure that they had a golden parachute, made sure that they were taken care of at the expense of others. And what we come to here in this passage is Paul's take on that intuitive reality. Because for us when we when we see those stories happen the indignation kind of rises in your heart, doesn't it? And you go, why weren't there more checks and balances? I thought that person had great integrity. I thought that there would be more people aware of what was going on. And inevitably, you find that what happens is the circle gets shrunk and people make financial decisions in the dark and on their own with no accountability. And does that ever go well? Does it ever go? Do you ever find out in the news that some individual at the top was so sacrificially generous that it impacted their entire organization? No, you find out that he's on the take. You find out that he or she has sacrificed their character for coin. And you can come up with name after name after name after name of Christian leader, spiritual leader, nonprofit leader, business leader, whoever it is who's in a position of great influence who has inevitably succumbed to the temptation of covetousness. So, what is Paul going to do? And let me tell you, just as we start, Paul agrees with that subjective feeling. Paul lives in the real world, just like you and I live in the real world. He understands that financial matters come with significant temptation. Financial matters come with greater scrutiny on our reputation. If you've ever felt like, I can't quite trust that guy, I can't trust that gal, no way would I give to them, then you feel what Paul feels in this passage. So this is, a, this is almost a pragmatic passage, because what is Paul going to do? As he gathers and motivates these churches to participate in God's purposes of meeting the needs of people who are in poverty, how is he going to motivate them? How is he going to secure the glory of God? How is he going to defend his own reputation? How is he going to make sure that nobody would cast a suspicious eye as he gathers money from churches and goes on to his destination? And as, what you're going to see here in this passage is Paul's pragmatic wisdom in handling finances. He's not going to talk so much about giving, which he'll, he'll kind of talk to, to the Corinthians in a minute, but he's going to talk about handling money. How do you handle money in an upright way? How do you handle it in such a way that your reputation is preserved, that people can trust you, that the glory of God is primarily seen in the way that you handle material and financial matters? That's this passage. You need this passage, don't you? You don't just get to the end and Paul goes, y'all give and put it in that suitcase and you watch a guy roll off with a suitcase full of 20s and go, well, to the glory of God. You need ethics, you need standards, you need confidence to make sure that the glory of God and the good of his people and the needs are met. And what you're going to have is is three different guys in the beginning of this passage that are going to be men of the utmost character to handle something that can come with profound destructive tendencies if it's not handled well. You with me? So, Let's pray and ask God for his grace and what he wants to teach us here. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray for grace and understanding and light. The Psalms say that the unfolding of your word gives light. And we pray that for these few minutes that we'd be challenged to be the men and the women that you desire for us to be. Father, that covetousness would not grip our hearts, but that the grace of God in Jesus Christ who was rich yet for our sake became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich, that that story might sit at the center of our lives and we might be people with open hands toward all that you want to do in us and through us. So Father, shape us and change us and challenge us through your word. Would it cut to the motivations and the intentions of our heart and that you would capture our affections? Father, bless us as we get taught by you. Would the Holy Spirit cause your word to come alive in our hands? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, take a look. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 16, into the beginning of chapter 9. Y'all there? Say yeah. All right, good. You there. But look at verse... 16 with me. But thanks be to God. Now Paul has used that thanks be to God reference or phrase before and he used it all the way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember when Paul came into Macedonia looking for Titus and his spirit was not at rest and then he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. That just because Paul didn't feel right about not seeing Titus didn't mean that God wasn't in control. And it caused Paul to say, Oh, good, my, the, God's leadership in my life isn't dependent on how I feel at the moment. Isn't that good news? Whew, I feel good about that. Now he responds again and he says, Thanks be to God again, but the way that Paul is going to give thanks. In this passage has to do with not God's leadership in his own life, but something that God has done in somebody else's life. And all through the beginning of this passage, the, the, all the rest of chapter eight is really a great study on what it looks like to be a Christian leader. What ought to motivate the heart of a Christian leader? In fact, if you are so going to trust somebody with a large financial amount of money to bless the needs of people that you are never going to see and you don't know, what confidence is Paul going to give us that these men are trustworthy? And all the way through this passage, you're going to get character qualities of the kind of people who you can trust when the stakes are high. So look at the first one he's going to mention. He's going to mention Titus. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Make a note. If you're getting discipled by the Apostle Paul, he's not just giving you doctrine. When you are discipled by the Apostle Paul, when you are one of what he will call Titus later, a fellow worker... Paul is looking for something in the character of the people that he partners with in leadership. And the thing that he's looking for and the thing that he gives thanks for in the leaders he disciples is that they have a heart for people. This is one of the premier marks of Christian leadership is that they love people. They love to be around them. They love to move toward their problems. They love to listen to them. They love to counsel them in times of distress. And when Paul sees that in the heart of a Christian leader, he goes, oh, thanks be to God. Look at God is alive. God is at work. Why? Because all of us have this tendency to do this, don't we? Me, me, right? We all do this. And Paul says, look at what's happening in Titus' heart. Look at how he cares for the church as much as an apostle of Jesus Christ cares for the church. If you have an ambition to be used of God in Christian leadership, this is one of the areas of your personal discipleship that you will be called to. You will be pulled into investment in other people, pulled into caring about the difficulties and the hardships and the opportunities that God has in front of the people of God. And Paul is thrilled at this, and he gives thanks to God for this. He has the same earnest care for I, that I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, which is continue the giving, which we saw a couple weeks ago, but he himself, being very earnest, is going to you of his own accord. Which means Titus wasn't guilted into caring for people. Right? He doesn't, Paul doesn't say, I'm discipling you, and now you better love those people. Now, you want to be a leader and you want to get a disciple, that's good, but you better be loving those people. Paul says, thanks be to God that God put it in his heart, the same zeal, the same care I have for you. And not only that, Titus is excited to participate in what God is doing in the Corinthian church. Titus is thrilled to be a part. I can't wait to go back, Paul. Paul, give me another letter and I'm going to take it and we're going to go back. Now, this is consistent in the people that Paul disciples. Keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians with me. Go over to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is this great passage that talks about Christ and his emptying, right? About how Christ opened his hand and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And we all stand back and wonder at the fact that, wow, Jesus divested himself of his heavenly glory to come down and be incarnated as a baby, as a man, and to live with us down here. But then at the end of Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks to you about the leaders that he's discipling that are going to come back to the Philippian church. Look at Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. The same kind of news that Titus brought back of the Corinthian church to Paul. Here's Timothy going to the Philippians. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their what? Their own interests. Well, who didn't seek his own interest earlier in Philippians 2? It was Christ. Here's an example of Jesus getting a hold of a young guy who cares now for the church, who says, I'm going to put somebody else's interests above my own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Well, it's not just Timothy, look at the next guy. 25. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow fellow soldier. How would you want to be described by Paul? That's a pretty high commendation, isn't it? He's my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. He got sick, and sick so bad that he got worried that other people were worried about him. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm more eager to send him therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be used of God? This is the curriculum. Go back to 2 Corinthians. What does Paul expect of the people he disciples? He expects them to take relational and spiritual responsibility for others. Now, you're going to see there's other qualities that Paul's going to point out in two guys that are unnamed. But that's a pretty big one to start, isn't it? No? Are you out there? I can see you. You can't hide. Say yes. That's a big one. They've got to care. They've got to love the people. Verse 18. Y'all back in 2 Corinthians? Second verse 18. With him... This is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, right here. So we've got Titus. Titus is one of Paul's personal disciples. And we're not just sending Titus, one of Paul's personal disciples, who's been back and forth to the Corinthian church. We're sending someone else. Verse 18. With him, we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. What a fantastic, beautiful contrast. Contrast profound gifting in his day and time. So famous that he's known for his preaching gift among all the churches of his day. And he is effectively forgotten to history. Profound gifting, reputation, recognition of his preaching gift. What don't you have? You don't have his name. He's just called the brother. You ever heard of a guy named Zinzendorf? It's a great name. You remember that? He's got a count. His name is Nicholas, I think it's von Zinzendorf is his name. Fantastic. He's got a quote like this. Real easy. You can remember it. it, Put it on your receipt today when you pay for lunch. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That's this verse right here, isn't it? He's gifted. He's powerful. He's got got a mastery of the text. He's got an ability to, to influence people with the preaching. And the spirit works when he gets into the pulpit. Who is he? I can't remember. I don't know. Well, what's his name? Don't you want his name? And Paul says he's famous among all the churches for preaching the gospel. Look at verse 19. And not only that. Not only is he famous, not only does he have a preaching gift, but he's been appointed by the churches. Appointed is a word in the Greek that is a technical term that means the raising of hands. Which means not only uh, is, is he gifted, is his life characterized by gospel ministry and gospel preaching, but also people recognize something about him that makes him trustworthy. Now, all through these individuals that Paul is going to name, we're going to complete, we're going to, I'm sorry, we're going to come back to character things. Titus, he's got a love for people. This guy, he's got a preaching gift. But he's not just gifted in the pulpit. People recognize that character is what uh, what he is all about. So much so that everybody raises their hand and says, this is a guy that should go with the giving. Well, we don't need a preacher We just need somebody to carry the money. That's fine. We can trust him. And everybody now raises their hand and says, this is the guy who needs to go with Titus. He's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. So here's what Paul calls financial participation in the purposes of God. Again, here he calls it an act of grace. Ministered is the Greek word for service. So it's a opportunity for grace to serve others in a position of financial need. Now, here's the purposes behind that gift. It's for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. One of the things you recognize is that if Paul is now sending someone with Titus, who is recognized by all the churches, this brother functions in a sense as somebody who's kind of like a notary. He provides independent verification that the way Titus is going to handle the gifts is upright and above board. If you only send Titus, you go, well, of course you send Titus. That's one of Paul's boys. That's one of the guys that Paul knows. That's one of the guys that obviously is going to do whatever Paul says. And and Paul says, now wait, we're going to send somebody that you pick. You know how they pick the first deacons in the Bible in Acts chapter 6? You know what they say? They say, you pick men from among you who are full of the spirit and of good repute. You pick them. Because listen, God's people can find people of character. Amen? You can find, there's an aroma to them. They're principled men and women. And when everybody raises their hand and says, hey, this brother over here, he's got a preaching gift, but he's also got the character to back it up. And we know that he is trustworthy. What's at stake? One, the glory of the Lord himself, right? That's what's at stake in handling money well. Do you believe that? The way you handle money distinctly pertains to how you view the glory of God? What do people who are exposed who've mismanaged money forgot? They have forgotten the glory of the Lord. And number two, it's to show their goodwill. To show that all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is exposing his heart and his motives to you. And he says, I'm glad to have somebody that you guys pick to send with this collection to show and to guarantee our goodwill toward the people who are in poverty. Glad to do it. So you got people, you got leaders who have a heart. You've got leaders who have uh, giftedness and character. Number twenty. Look at what Paul says, verse twenty. We take this course. Well, what is this course in context? It's it's picking the right individuals, right? It's picking the men who are going to be able to administer this gift effectively with uprightness and integrity, with an eye toward the glory of the Lord, and to show the heart of the people who gave the money. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. So the reason Paul puts multiple people in place to be able to give evidence for his integrity, to give evidence that this gift is out of the glory of God and out of the sincerity of the hearts who gave it, is to avoid suspicion. Why in the world would Paul add more people to this caravan of folks who are meeting the needs of the poor if not to avoid suspicion? Now imagine this, this is, let me give you an illustration. My wife asked me last week, she said, how do we give to the churches that are overseas? I said, well, it's by wire transfer. And then we started laughing. We started, I started just being goofy and I thought how funny it would be. We need somebody We've got to send money to a church in Thailand. We have anybody who speaks Thai? There's one, you know, Steve Lindemeyer, he speaks Thai, that's good. What do we want to do? Let's get all the money, everybody give cash, put it in a suitcase, give it to Steve, put him on a plane and send him to Thailand. Now you laugh. And I laughed, because I thought it was a great joke. And we were laughing back and forth, and I said, why do we laugh at that? I mean, Steve's got good character. Are we gonna count the money? No, we're not gonna count it. We're just gonna shove it in this suitcase, give it to Steve as a carry-on, and he's gonna get on the plane. What do you think the authorities are gonna say? You think Steve's gonna make it out of Thailand? No. Why? Because nobody thinks it's upright. They all think he's a drug smuggler. They all think he's trying to, you know, launder money. They think all sorts of stuff. So Paul says we're sending somebody with him to make sure that nobody can blame us. But not only that, look at 21. Because the decisions that you are going to make financially can't just avoid suspicion. There's another half of it. You can't just send somebody with Steve on the plane with a suitcase full of 20s. You've got to do something else. Look at verse 21. For we aim at what is what? Honorable. You can't just avoid suspicion. You've got to aim at one what is honorable. Now, would you agree, Christians, that no matter where you are, who you are, Christian or non-Christians, you can identify something that is honorable, can't you? You can identify with validity and reputation and integrity. You see those things and you see that there's nothing of suspicion in the decisions these individuals are making with finances. And what Paul is showing you by adding people to this group who's going to administer the money, they're going to get all together and they're going to count it three times. And they're going to say, is it... $40. Yep, it's $40. Did you see it? Yep, I counted it myself. I counted in another room. It's $40. Great, we're getting on the plane. We're going to count it on the plane. Is it still $40? It's $40. Plane's going to land. We're going to be there. How much is it? Still $40. Everybody? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, we're going to get to the people who need the money. What are we going to do? How much are we going to give them? Is it going to end up being $20? Nope. It's going to be $40. So that all the way across the way, uh, across the trip, we're going to be able to vouch that this is a gift given for the glory of God and according to the goodwill of all the churches. And it is a gift given that is honorable. We are fine with examination because we're avoiding not only suspicion because we know that our integrity and the gospel's integrity is at stake, but we're going to aim at what is honorable. Not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. This means that Paul doesn't rely on my motives are pure. I'm an apostle. Paul doesn't point the proof of his integrity back at himself. He is glad to be examined. Because he recognizes that his ministry is done in the eyes of men. Now this may be shocking to you, Christians but it matters what people say about you. Would you agree with that? Yeah. It matters the kind of individual you are at work. It matters the character and the integrity that you exhibit before a watching world. It matters. Well, they should know that I'm a Christian, and they should know by the grace of God. No, they are not looking at that. Remember what God tells Samuel when he gets David? Samuel starts, and he goes, and he gets, all, he gets all the boys of Jesse, and he gets the first one, and he goes, this is the man. He's tall, he's fast, he's strong, He can run a 40, bench 225, he's all right. He's the guy we need to lead the nation. And God goes, no, I haven't chosen him. Man looks on the, the outward. God looks at the... Hey, don't neglect the fact that man are, men are looking, women are looking on the externals. Your character can be seen by the decisions you make To make the priority of the glory of God and the sincerity of your heart visible before men. And Paul says, we're aiming not just at what's honorable in the Lord's sight. God can search us all the way down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But we're also concerned about what people say. Now, verse 22. Here's leader number three. You with me so far? Verse 22. Here's your leader number three. With them we're sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. So we need a leader who loves the people of God, right? Titus, he cares. He's got the same earnest care that the apostle Paul has. We need somebody who's gifted, not only gifted in gospel ministry, who knows the right doctrines, but whose character is on display and who everybody would say, that's the guy who can handle the money. But number three, we need people who are tested. We need people who are faithful in little things over a long period of time. We don't just need somebody who raises their hand and said, I'll go. No, Paul says, we're going to send a brother number three who we've often tested. And we have found out, we've discovered something about him. In little bitty opportunities where he has had the chance to exhibit character or to uh, exhibit ungodliness, we have found that he is faithful. We've discovered that he, been, he has been earnest in many matters, but who now is more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. This guy has been tested in a lot of ways. Do we know his name? Say no. We don't know his name. But he's got a track record. Of being faithful. He does little basic acts of faithfulness well. He's been watched by Paul the apostle. And now Paul vouches for him and says he is a guy you can trust. Because I've seen that he's faithful in the dark. He's faithful in the light. He's faithful with little kids. He's faithful in his family. He's faithful in the workplace. He's faithful when he drives. Maybe not that one. He's faithful. You get it. Little bitty areas. Proven. Tested earnest. And now he's excited to be at the forefront of where God's purposes are being realized in the people of God. He longs to be a part of what God is doing in the people of God. Anybody who is small in the faithful things as they grow in maturity will get drawn into more and more opportunities to be used of God in the lives of other people. And it will stoke the fires of their heart to be faithful to God and the opportunities God has given them, you believe that? You believe you're faithful in the little things. You'll be faithful with what? Say much. You'll be faithful with much. Paul says this is that kind of guy. Now, as he ends, Paul's going to sign off and give his own. Um, what's it called when you get a reference? His uh, his commendation. Verse twenty-three. You see how verse twenty-three starts. It's a, uh, the way the Greek works here, it's as if a question is being asked as to the integrity of the men. And what Paul is going to do is speak to who these individuals are. And Paul himself is going to give a commendation. First one is Titus. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. We just saw that in Philippians, right, of Timothy. That's a high commendation from Paul. See, Paul doesn't tell him, he's my little bitty disciple. He's my lackey. Paul recognizes the discipleship of young leaders is going to result in them becoming peers, in them rising into positions of influence and care and concern for the people of God. So that at the end of Paul's ministry, Paul leaves behind him a wake of individuals who are gifted, who are courageous, who love the people of God, and who Paul would consider his peers. They've grown in maturity. Titus is my partner, my fellow worker for your benefit. We've already talked about that last week, but this is the heart of Titus. Titus cares that the people of God would be faithful. He cares that the people of God would obey. He cares that the people of God would grow in their maturity and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And all of this is in the context of money. And then he vouches for these other two guys. And as for our brothers, so we've got Titus and the two unnamed brothers. As for our brothers, they're messengers of the churches. One of the very few times in the Old Testament where the word apostle is used not in the capital A Apostle sense, but in the sense these guys are sent from other churches to be a part of the giving that goes to the saints who are in poverty. And then finally, in the Greek, you might think that the glory of Christ is connected to the churches, but it's actually not. In a strange adjective description, what Paul says is the glory of Christ, are the men of great character. Did you see that? What higher commendation can you have for men who are called to the task of fulfilling the purposes of God in their day? They are the glory of Christ. They are a credit to Christ. They are men who make seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and the callings that God has given them. Now, all throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you have noticed that Paul has been leveraging his influence. He's been talking about the threats. Actually, he's been talking about not only threats, but he's been talking about the opportunities to be a part of what is happening and meeting the needs of people in other places who are Christians. Christians who need the support and the strength of churches that are Gentiles. And when you get to the end of chapter 8 here, you have an unspoken question, don't you? In fact, you have an unspoken critique that 2 Corinthians eight sixteen down to 23 is the answer for. If the answer is men who are committed to the glory of God with high integrity, with a willingness to do uh, and to administer this gift of grace, to avoid suspicion and aim at what is honorable, if that's the answer, then what's the question that Paul is writing? What's the question in the hearts and minds of people that he's appealing to give toward the purposes of God? And the question is, can I trust the leaders? Isn't that the question? Can I trust that they'll handle the money well? Can I trust that they will do what is honorable? Can I trust that they are open to examination? Can I trust that their reputation and the opportunity God has given us will secure my gift going forward? And Paul answers that with yes, doesn't he? He says you can trust them. They've been validated. They've been tested. They have a heart. They have integrity. They have a passion for gospel ministry. Therefore, verse 24. So give proof. Literally, demonstrate the demonstration. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. I love that Paul says that. Give proof before the churches of your love. What is proof of the Corinthian church's love for the poor saints? What is it? Money. It's giving. It's a material gift. It's giving of what they have to meet the needs of the saints. Give proof of your love and our boasting to these men. What, did, how, what was the conversation with Paul to Timothy and brother number one and brother, I'm sorry, Paul to Titus, and brother number one and brother number two. What characterized, remember, Paul's been hurt by this church. And he now talks to these three guys and says, I can't wait for you to see how generous they're gonna be. I can't wait for you to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ that has so gripped this church's heart. I can't wait for you to see how they're going to respond. Now, I'm going to talk about that technique, that aspect of Paul's encouragement in a minute. But up to this point, Paul has been very restrained in the ways in which he will invite and motivate material giving, hasn't he? He's never used law. He's always believed the absolute best about the Corinthians. He's put in front of them this opportunity to participate in the purposes of God. He's told them how, when, and why to give. He's given them the example of the Macedonians. He's given them the example of Jesus Christ. He's actually... Given them men of great integrity and great character who you can trust as you give to them. But he's never levied a tax, has he? He's never used guilt. He's never used manipulation. He's only encouraged, he's only declared the opportunity. He's only said that this is what God is doing in the world and you have an opportunity to be a part. See, one of the things that happens for us in our giving, and that is almost unspoken when we talk about our giving, is that we have a tendency to think that the, that the money that I have is mine, rather than given to me by God to steward for his glory and for the good of others. And Paul has been so restrained in refusing to use law to motivate the giving of the people of God. Do you know how hard it is to preach this text? And not go, we need X amount. Do you know how hard that is for me? Can't you feel the law temptation in a passage like this? And Paul is brilliant. The Holy Spirit is so beautiful in this passage because Paul won't gild them. He won't manipulate them. He won't tax them. He won't mandate anything. He will say, hands off. But he'll say, give proof of your love. Don't you hate that? Isn't that frustrating? What's the amount of money that gives proof of my love? Ah, gosh, I don't know. What happens? i got to wrestle with it. i got to fight with it, right? I've got to navigate the temptations in my heart that so often weave this story in my life that what I have earned is because of my integrity and my character and my degrees and my reputation and the insight and the things that I've accomplished. God, you don't understand, God, how much I have made, how much I am worth, how much I have accomplished, and I deserve the money that I have. And then Paul gets you in the, you know, the arm bar. And he goes, what about giving proof of your love to all the churches? Don't you, that's so annoying. Chapter nine, verse one. Now, now watch this. I want you to watch because that heart tension is going to come back here in just a few verses. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Why? Because I've talked to you about it for a whole chapter. I've written a lot about it. Is there anything about this, this gift, this ministry that, is, that we don't understand? No, I don't need to write to you about this anymore. Paul, That's a rare point for Paul to say, I don't need to talk about this anymore, right? Paul typically has these run-on sentences where he's trying to talk about all sorts of stuff. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness. Of which I boast, there it is again, about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Achaia is the, the area in which Corinth is located. Saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, let me give you a time frame. Paul, in the beginning of chapter 8, told you about the Macedonians, right? You remember that? Read the beginning of chapter 8 to see how the Macedonians gave above and beyond what was even unwise or reasonable according to what they have. A church that was in massive financial difficulty massive financial poverty, and Paul goes, oh my gosh, look at the grace of God that was given to them. Look at how excited they are to participate. And he used them as an example. But what's interesting is right here we find out that you know what stirred them to that generosity? It was the Corinthian church. Paul bragged to the Macedonians about the Corinthian church. While he was doing that, false apostles are in the Corinthian church discouraging their obedience to Paul's words, corrupting their uh, opinion of Paul, closing their hearts to Paul and to the doctrine that he's taught them, and Paul has to write that severe letter. But again, Paul's encouraging the Macedonians, the Macedonians get they get all stirred up. They can't wait to give. And Paul says, now, Corinthians, now that you've disciplined the guy and you're back and you're ready and you started that gift that you had ready to send to the saints in poverty, come on, finish it up. Titus is going to come back. Finish up that gifting. Complete that zeal. So Paul doesn't pit one against the other. He says, the gospel's at work over here. You ought to give. Look at the gospel's at work over here. You can participate too. So it's a little bit of saying, come back to the heart that you had at the beginning. Achaia okay, was ready since last year. Verse three, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. So that you may be ready as I said you would be. Isn't that, isn't that frustrating too? Imagine somebody shows up at your house with a letter from your dear friend. And you don't know this person from anybody. And they show up and they go, here's a letter from your dear friend. And your letter, and this letter from your dear friend says, I'm sure that you're gonna be massively, overwhelmingly generous to the individual who's standing on your front porch. <laughs> I am so excited because I bragged about your generosity and your overwhelming care and concern for the needs of people just like him. Whew. What is Paul doing? Why does Paul have the audacity to brag and to boast about the Corinthians? And don't miss this because this is the heart of really where he's going at the end of this passage. The reason he does that is that because Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, really believes that what the Corinthians have is not for them, it's for God and for the purposes of God. Now, let me take it a step further. Here we are in 2022 in Charleston, South Carolina. We're reading the word of God and we see the truths that are on hand that Paul would have the audacity to boast, to pretend. Paul says, Citadel Square, I have boasted about this group of people About the grace of God that has gripped their hearts. About their desire to fulfill and to be a part of the purposes of God. And the only reason Paul can say that, the only reason we read this and believe that that is true is that we believe that God's word has something to say about our money. And that God has every right to invite you to participate financially in what God is doing in the world. Do you agree with that? Because to not agree with that means that you are in a precarious, dangerous place for your soul. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, what's that mean? That means it's not just Titus and the two brothers coming, it means I'm coming. Paul's coming and I'm bringing the people who were in poverty who gave what they didn't have. They gave an unreasonable amount, and they're going to show up in your church. Otherwise, if I come, if some Macedonians come with me and I find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So would you be shamed in your reputation? You would be, but that's not the greatest threat to your heart. The greatest threat to your heart is not that you are ashamed. The greatest threat to your heart when it comes to financial and material things is in verse 5. See, all of what Paul is doing is aiming at the heart of the Corinthians, right? That's why he doesn't use law. Because he can't get your heart with law. We can't get your heart with law. I can give you a list of things that you ought to do and you'll applaud that list and go and do them, but I'll never have your heart. And Paul knows that. That's why he doesn't resort to law. He'll give examples. He'll preach Christ. He'll talk about sacrificial generosity. He'll give you the methods of doing it. He'll say, you can trust these men, but I won't use law on your heart. Verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised. Paul made sure that they had an opportunity to save themselves from shame. Isn't that kind of Paul? Why wouldn't Paul go... I'm here, time to give. And the reason he won't do that is the last few words here. We're gonna arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it might be ready as a willing gift. Not as an exaction. A willing gift is the word, it's not money, it's not money. And it's not so much even the word gift, it's the word blessing. So Paul invites this church to participate in the purposes of God, to meet the needs of those who are in difficult financial situations. And he says, you have an opportunity to be a blessing. And I'm going to make sure that you have that opportunity in an uncoerced way so that your sacrificial, Christ-focused generosity might be done like Jesus tells us to give in Matthew chapter 6. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, right? When you give, you give in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will what? He'll reward you. So Paul says, I'm not going to show up and use my apostle card. I think they all had cards. They warm right here. I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to guilt you into it. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to tax you. I'm not going to say you have to. What I'm going to do is provide the opportunity so that you make the decision by yourself in your heart when you give according to what you have and what God has put in your hands. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it before I get there so that when I get there, we might be able to applaud that what was given was a result, not of manipulation, not of um, intimidation, not of guilt, not of taxation, but it would only be done because of the heart that God has given you. Now, this is the great danger when Paul closes here. That word exaction works like this. That word is used in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Paul closes, and he says, we want this gift to be a willing gift, a blessing, that you've been blessed to bless others, not as one done out of covetousness. See, there's two ways to give. I need something small, but I don't have it. I'll use the Bible. There's two ways to give. There's a way that you can give like this, right? Go ahead take it, right? Or you can give like this, where my hand is open and I'm eager to participate. And this is something that Paul hasn't dealt with all the way through the book of second, or all the way through this chapter when it comes to money. Because if I remove the skepticism about leadership, if I remove the uncertainty about how and when and why I ought to give, If I teach you about Christ and by his poverty, us becoming rich, and if I give you examples in the Macedonian church of their reckless, unreasonable generosity, then what is left as an answer not to give? What's left is the profound temptation that our hearts are more controlled by covetousness than it is by the gospel. And Paul says, I'm going to give you every opportunity to get the idol of covetousness out of your heart. I'm going to give you every opportunity to invite you into participating with what God is doing on this planet. I'm going to eliminate every question you have. I'm going to blow away every skeptical thing that is in your heart about opening your hands with what God has given you for the sake of others. And by the end of this chapter, he's going to talk about a cheerful giver next week. You will never be cheerful if you are a coveter. Never. Because if covetousness has your heart, you will never open your hand. See, so by this point, there's nothing really else to say. By this point, Paul has gotten rid of all the excuses. And the fearful thing for me as a pastor and the fearful thing for us as a church is to let covetousness go unchecked and rampant in our congregation. Is for us to unwittingly never examine what comes into our bank accounts, to never ask the question, God, how do you want me to steward this such that covetousness doesn't have the last word in my heart? And it's only the power of Jesus Christ that has the strength to uproot the idol of covetousness. There's no other way to get it out of your life. There's no other way to get it out of your heart. Because our culture and our time and what you've been taught and in your upbringing is always going to go against sacrificial generosity for the good of others according to the gospel. It's always going to go to my life depends on the abundance of my possessions. My life depends on the comforts I have. My life depends on my financial security and my emotional security based on how much money is in the account. And I get to this passage at the end of what God is doing in you and what God is doing at me when it comes to our money and all I can do is plead for the strength that covetousness might not have my heart. Because that's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. I want to be free. I don't want my money to have the last word over my heart. And there's no other way to get there unless you go back to what Paul has already said. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know who he is, you know what he has done that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Father, we need an uprooting to happen in our hearts. And even as I pray that, Father, I know the the fearful temptation of wanting to hold on to what I have. For all of us in this room, Father, I pray that you would uproot the idol of covetousness from us that as we seek to pray to you, to ask you how we might use what you have given us for your glory, for the good of others, to be sacrificially generous because Christ was sacrificially generous to us. Father, all we can do is pray and confess that there are areas of our life where you are not Lord. There are areas of our life where we believe that we should have the last say. And so often that's our money. So Father, would you free us of that addiction? Would you blow fresh wind and grace through our lives and to our hearts in the way that we think that we would give us a new perspective on money, a new perspective on generosity that perhaps we'd never seen before, never understood before. Would the richness of the grace of Jesus Christ capture our attentions and our affections? Would we be people who live in light of Christ's generous sacrifice for us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.